0: Listen to any soft rock or country station in your city and you'll find that people are looking for love. They are looking for a relationship that will light up their life. Our culture believes that this passionate relationship that will bring ultimate meaning to life is found in sex. But this is a lie. This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you grow passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Mention passion, and hardly any of us think of God. God brings thoughts of hard rules, boring church services, and stuffy clergymen. These images are the deceptive pictures of Satan, and he wants to use them to take us away from the source of all love, God. Today on Truth Encounter, our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, introduces us to a letter written by Jesus Christ to a church that was orthodox, but dead. What did Jesus have to say to a church with truth, but no divine romance?
1: Mary does a lot of things for me. Mary does a lot of things. She man over the Thanksgiving holidays. You know, she made turkey and she made mashed potatoes without having any lumps in it and great gravy and incredible stuff. She does incredible things for me. When I went through seminary, she even made all my clothes so we could save money. And she took a gift that she got from her grandfather and paid for a semester at Dallas Seminary for me. Mary's done all kinds of things for me. But you know, if we're drinking coffee together in the morning and I look across from one stool to the next and, and Mary looks at me and she's cold. And she says, you know, I do a lot of things for you, but I can't stand your guts and I'm not close to you, then we don't have a marriage. You see, every one of you know that you need not just performance. You need not just a lot of doing, but you need passion. It's very possible that maybe like the Ephesian church, we're going to look at a church that had a lot of orthodoxy. They had a lot of truth. They also had a lot of activity. They had a lot of performance. But they lost their passion for Jesus. They lost their intimacy with Jesus. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 2... ...and let's pick uh, pick up our study of the book of Revelation. And we just introduced, just barely introduced... ...the letter to the Ephesian church. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. This is the church with truth... ...but no divine romance. This is the church with truth... But no divine romance. We begin to look at verse 1 to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Remember, we learned that the seven stars represent the seven messengers. We studied about the fact that the messenger was the one that was responsible to bring this letter from the great apostle John that was exiled on Patmos. John wrote this out under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He gave it to a messenger, and the messenger came across the, from Patmos... ...across the Aegean Sea, about 25 miles, went up from Miletus... ...up into Ephesus and read this book. And what I want you to see is that Jesus says that he holds this messenger... ...every one of the seven messengers that's responsible for bringing these letters... ...this book of Revelation to the church... Every one of these messengers that's responsible for delivering the word of God is held in the hands of Jesus. Isn't that great? You know what that means? It means that down through the centuries, that Jesus has been holding his messengers in his hand. I talked to you about the Corinthian church. On a Sunday night, they broke bread together, and they had communion together. They also studied the word of God together. We have an early first century church where they did those things. And then the Apostle Paul spoke to the church at Troas all night long. You think I'm long-winded. Apostle Paul spoke all night long. But there was a messenger that was teaching the word of God. So what the Apostle John is saying, that Jesus is holding these messengers. And Jesus is going to be having his messenger until he comes back. In churches around the world, he's going to be having those that will be true to this message, this inspired revelation, that will share it with the body of Christ. Isn't that great to know that? And that's why we're doing what we're doing right now. I'm a messenger that opens this precious inspired revelation, prayerfully being held by Jesus, to faithfully teach you. And I pray that you'll listen to the Lord Jesus as he wants to take this written revelation and make it the heart message of your life. It says, to the one who holds the seven stars, the seven messengers, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The Apostle John reminded the Ephesian church that they might think that Jesus had just gone to heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God, but that wasn't all that he did. Jesus also, when he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in our lives as believers, it means that whenever we get together, Jesus is present, walking among us, and I want you to realize that. Jesus is right here. With his fiery eyes that we learned about in Revelation chapter 1. He is penetrating your soul. He's exposing what's there. And he really wants to talk to you today. He wants to really touch your life, deep inside. Much deeper than I could ever get. So don't just listen to me. Listen to Jesus moving among us. Talking to your heart. Penetrating your soul. Jesus walks among the lampstands. The church is a light. What you do in the next few minutes will control very much the kind of a light that you and I have as we go out into the world. And Jesus is moving among us. As Jesus moves among us, some of you start trembling and say, oh man, all he have to do is say a bunch of bad things for me. No. Every one of you need to learn from Jesus because as Jesus moves among us, he's the ultimate parent. He's the ultimate teacher. He's the ultimate coach. And what we're going to find out is that as Jesus moves among us, as he moved among the Ephesian church, he started out with the positive. Every good teacher knows that. Every good teacher knows that if you have something to point out that's negative, you need to start out. If you can find something that's positive, that's where you need to begin. So the Lord Jesus begins with some very positive things. Look at verse 2. It says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. You have persevered, you've endured hardship for my name, and you've not grown weary. As the Lord Jesus moved among the Ephesian church, you know what he's saying, brothers and sisters? He's saying, you're not spiritual Carl Lewis's. You're not spiritual 100-meter men. You're not just Herschel walkers that can run the 100 meters under 10 seconds. No, you're marathoners. He's telling the Ephesian believers, you are those who started out this Christian life back in about 52 AD. The Ephesian church was born. Priscilla and Aquila went, and then the great apostle Paul came, and the apostle Paul for three years ministered in the Ephesian church. And man, all kinds of things happened. As the church was born, they got excited about Jesus. They made such an impact as they brought the gospel into their businesses. They brought the gospel into their city. That the trade of Diana, which was selling, making these little silver idols... The silversmiths would smith these little idols, which were like a female idol with many breasts. And it represented Diana, it represented fertility, represented this Ephesian goddess. That, remember I told you about the big festival they had once a year where for an entire month they would celebrate in their pagan temple? The believers in Ephesus were having such an impact that they actually threatened the Diana trade. And that's why there was a great big riot. The the silversmiths got so uptight about the money they were losing because of the impact of the gospel. They actually caused a riot through the entire city. This church was exploding. This church was excited about the gospel. This is when Epaphras, a young Colossi boy, a young man that was over in Ephesus for some reason, about 100 miles farther east from his hometown, he heard about Jesus. When we studied the book of Colossians, we learned how Epaphras came to know Christ, and he got so excited about Jesus, he went back home to Colossae and founded a church there, One people to Christ there, and that's why the book of Colossians was written. This was the birth of the church of Ephesus. It was a church that literally reached, the Apostle Paul could say that the end of the three years, they were so full of evangelistic fervor They were so full of work for Jesus that they had literally walked all over modern-day Turkey and they'd taken the gospel into every nook and cranny of that part of the world called Asia Minor. Isn't that great? And the Lord Jesus is saying, I saw your hard work. I saw the things that you did. And I want you to know, as Jesus comes into our midst, he sees every one of your hard work. I see some people that, you know what, they have worked in the nursery for 25 years. you realize how many dirty diapers of somebody else's smelly kid that is? Jesus has seen every smelly diaper that you've changed of a baby that didn't belong to you at all, except that there may be somebody else in the body of Christ. You say, Dave, is that important? You bet. Somebody working in the nursery works hard so that some young mothers can focus on receiving the message from Jesus. Every one of you that ever do that, God sees every amount of work that you do. And he rejoices in your perseverance. Many of us can look back over years and years of working together. The hard work, doing work. You know, some of you are sitting there going and you know, my Christianity is really not going anywhere my christianity in fact i have been looking and looking and looking i've looked for one church after another in fact i've even bopped around from one church after another none of it it never works and you go because when i get involved in a church i start looking around and I, i i mean people just don't do what they're supposed to do and people just don't meet needs where they ought to meet them in fact my own needs are not met in fact i was in the hospital sick and nobody came to see me, and so I left that church family because nobody ever came to see me. And some of you really, you're saying, you know, I'm, I, I came this Sunday because I just thought maybe this Jesus thing will still work, but to be really honest with you, Dave, I just really doubt this whole Jesus thing. It's not working. And I'm going to share with you why it's not working. You have a critical spirit. You're always waiting for someone to meet your need. You're always waiting for someone else to do it, and I got news for you: this Christian thing will never, never work for you. It's just like athletics. One of my dreams is to go to a cowboy game. When I, when I, every once in a while, when I go to a cowboy game, there's always some guy behind me that, through the whole game, he just grumps and grumps and grumps and grumps. He says, "You are a bum. How could you miss the pass?" You didn't even see him. And through the whole game, the guy just yells and, and bothered everybody around him. And I've often shared with some of you in the past, but I have got a, a tremendous dream. I would love in some Cowboy game to win the fourth quarter with five minutes to go when the game is on the line, suddenly have two big Hulkin guys come in, grab this guy by the shoulders, lift him up in the air, take him down into the locker room, put shoulder pads on him, put football pants on him, put a helmet on him and say, pal, you are on. You've been teaching to play this whole game and let him go back to pass and have 340-pound linemen that run the 40 in 4-3 flat come charging him. You know what? Suddenly you stop criticizing. But you know what else you find? You're playing the game. Christianity is a game that has no spectators. There's no spectators in the body of Christ. Nobody's sitting on the sidelines telling everyone else what to do. You know what? We're just all the family of God doing it together. And every one of you have gifts. Every one of you have ability that have been nurtured by the Spirit of God. And the Ephesian church was commended because they worked. They worked. They did a lot of hard work. And God saw everything that they did. And I want to commend some of you are... Are you say, man, that, man I, I just, I'm running out of breath, I've been doing so much. And I want you to realize, Jesus comes to you and he says, I see everything you're doing. And I love you for that. I commend you for that. I'm excited that you're doing that. Jesus is not like me. He sees every one of you. He's seen every diaper you've changed. He's seen every Sunday school lesson you've prepared. He's seen every one of that you've listened to. He's seen every unbeliever you had over to your house to welcome them into your home. And some of you precious wives worked hard even after coming home from work to make a meal because your husband brought an unbeliever home and you reached out to them. Jesus has seen every one of those actions for his kingdom. And he appreciates it. He says, Thank you for doing it. And you know what? When you learn to respond to his thanks, you're not going to get hurt. When you learn to say, Jesus, you saw what I did. And you let Jesus hug you and let him tell you that he appreciates. That's what he's doing here at the Ephesian church. He's saying, I know your work. I know your perseverance. I know that you not only started out working, but man, you've been working now because when John wrote this letter, they'd already they were a church family about 35 years by that time as well. But then the Lord Jesus has a negative thing to say. It relates to what we started out with. You know what? Some of you are workers. Some of you are really good workers. Man, you you were raised being workers. You were raised pumping out the actions and doing the work that it took. But look what the next verse says. The Lord Jesus has something against him. Look what he says. It's there in verse 4. Yet, Jesus starts out with commendation. But someone that really loves you, they're going to commend you, they're going to stroke you, they're going to tell you how much they appreciate you, the work that you do. But you know what? Someone that really loves you, It's also going to look at you right in the eye, and they're going to tell you the truth. And if there's something that's not right, they're going to nail you. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus does. And Jesus nails me. Look what he says. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. What does that mean? I hold this against you because you've forsaken your first love. You know what Jesus is saying? It's what I was sharing with you. You see, Mary can make great mashed potatoes for me. Mary can make great turkeys for me. Mary can make a beautiful home for me. But you see, when we're alone in our bedroom at night before we go to bed, and we get into bed and Mary is just cold as ice, she rolls over, and she doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Or or if I take her out, and I want to take her to a really nice meal, and her eyes are cold as steel, you know what? That's not what I want. That's not what you want. You see, marriage isn't just work. M- marriage isn't just doing all the things. Well, you see, marriage has to be fire. There has to be passion. You see, like Mary sent me an email about a, about a week ago. She just got on the internet, and, and man, I got this email, this strange email, and man, it was steaming. Man, I, I was hoping she sent it to me in a special file that was, you know, that was protected. That's what marriage is supposed to be. Over the last week, you know, she looked at me and said, man, you're, you know, you're really, you're really a good lover. You're still the center of my heart. You see, that's what you all want in a marriage. That's what a marriage is supposed to be. A marriage without passion is sick. You know what? A relationship with Jesus that doesn't have any passion anymore, a relationship with Jesus that's grown cold, a relationship with Jesus that just doesn't have any heart in it, It's not what any of us want. And that's what Jesus knows, and that's what Jesus exposed in the the Ephesian church. They are great workers. They've got all the mechanics. The Ephesian church was a smoothly running, organized, administrative machine. Man, they were going like crazy. They had actions. They had business people making it happen. Man, they were doing things for Jesus. But you know what they didn't have? They lost their first love. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? I remember when I first fell in love with Mary, we were, I was engaged, I was 19 years of age, and I was working at Word of Life, and I was supposed to be just a mile away from Mary, just a mile of water, which is easy to negotiate. If worse came to worse, you could swim the mile and get over to see her. Two days before camp started, we had planned for months to be only a mile apart. She'd work at the inn, my dad's adult camp, I'd work at the island the teenage camp. We could easily negotiate to get together. Two days before camp started, they moved me nine miles down the lake to the children's camp to run the children's camp. And man, I was moaning and groaning. And Prof. Hendrick was up there teaching. I said, Prof., it's terrible. Man, I'm a gay Tamir. I'm not going to ever see her. Man, I'm nine miles away from her. And Prof. looked at me and he smiled wryly and said, Wurtson, you will figure out a way. I bet you you see her every single day the next 10 weeks. I said, Man, I don't even have a car. But you know, his words were prophetically true. Man, I took jeeps. I took old station wagons. I rode horses. I walked. No. <laughs> but there was only one day that I didn't see Mary in all those 10 weeks. You know why? Because love makes things happen. You say, Dave, I'm cold this morning. You say, Dave, how do I know whether I'm cold? I'm going to tell you how. When was the last time that you personally sought the Savior? If you left your Bible up here at church and there's no Bible at home, does it make any difference? Do you know it till the next Sunday? You see, my dad, my dad didn't really know a whole lot about philosophy. He didn't read Freud. Didn't, he knew nothing about Jung. I don't even think he knew who Jung was. By the way, if you know he was a very spiritually a psychologist that was really into the spiritual dimension of things. My dad didn't know any of that. But I'll never forget the young man. The things would be going nuts, and I'd be coming to Jesus, coming to my dad and say, Dad, you know, this Christianity thing, I don't think it works really well. You know, you go and travel all over the place, and and man, I just don't think it's a thing. And my dad would look at me right in the eye and he says, Dave, what'd you get out of your quiet time this morning? Boy, us kids, five of us kids. That was the knife. Just tell me, you know, what did you get out of your quiet time from Jesus today? What did Jesus tell you today? And if I said, oh, Dad, he would go, let's get the word out together, and we're going to spend some time with Jesus. My dad's in heaven, but he was very wise. The longer that I live, I meet all kinds of believers with all kinds of problems. I meet believers that look me in the eye and say, man, I just think this Jesus thing doesn't work. But you know what, I meet very, very few believers who meet with their lover in heaven every single day and listen to them, to him, talk to them in his word that are cold spiritually, that will tell me Jesus doesn't do his thing. And we say, I'm so busy in the modern world, baloney, baloney. Baloney. If I added up the time that I spend watching TV, I've got plenty of time to open this book and let Jesus talk to me. It's just a crock. You see, we've lost our first love. You see, if you don't want to spend any time in his word, what's happened? You've lost your first love. If you don't want to spend time alone with him, lovers want to be alone together, just the way it is. If you don't want to be alone with Jesus... If you don't want to listen to him, if you don't want to spend time with him, you just got to be honest. I've lost my first love, and as I close it, i got good news for you. Jesus is the only person I know that can rekindle first love. Jesus is the only person I know that can rekindle love in your, in your family. Jesus is the only one that can rekindle love in your marriages. Jesus is the only one that can rekindle love for your fellow believers. But most of all, Jesus is the only one that can rekindle love for him. Say, Dave, how'd they do it? He says one negative thing. I'm hurt because you've lost your first love. You've lost that passion you had when I first courted you, when I first expressed my love to you, and you expressed your love to me. And now he tells us how to remedy that. Look at what it says. It says in verse 5, remember the height from which you've fallen. The very first thing you need to do if you've lost your first love is you need to remember what it was like When you had newly come into that relationship, what did I just do in my marriage? When my marriage, it starts to grow cold. When I start to get distant from Mary. When I start to feel like estranged from Mary. What do I do? You know what I do? I go back and I remember what I just shared with you. There's not another woman in all the universe that will ever walk by a tennis court. And my eyes will look at her and realize, man, what an incredible chick, man. That She's really special. And she was reading a letter from another guy. And man, it started churning inside of me. And I started reaching out to her. There's not another woman in the world that will jump off a rock in the middle of an Adirondack waterfall. And just throw herself in my arms. And I drop her right in the middle of of the river. And break her foot like crazy. So she leaned on me for the next several weeks. That's the only way we got married. Break her independence. Nobody will ever have that. Nobody else will ever be. I'll never be 20 years of age. And my parents couldn't make it from an Adirondack snowy winter day on December 23rd. There'll never be another time in my life where a beautiful young woman will walk forward in a beautiful white dress. And I'll declare my vows to her. It just can't happen to anybody else. I'll never drive into 20 below zero weather, go over to a place. I didn't even know what town it was, North Platte, Nebraska. I'll never, never have a first night like that. Never. I'll never be there. They wouldn't let me in when Jonathan and Joel were born. They didn't let husbands near the wife in. But I'll never be there again when Josh was born. Actually there. When, when he came down and I put her up on Mary's breasts and And we had a son that I actually saw the whole thing happen. That'll happen with nobody else. You see, you got to remember, you've fallen out of love. Those are precious things. We just gather together from my whole extended family. If I walk away from Mary, if my love for Mary grows cold, I tear up really difficult things. How do you get back? You remember... That first love. You go back through your marriage history. When I'm working with a couple that's trying to rekindle relationship, one of the things I get them to do is to go back and remember their marriage story. Now, we're talking about something far more serious because sometimes partners don't want to cooperate. Sometimes partners get wrapped up in sin and they can demolish relationship. But there's an ultimate lover in heaven who will never ultimately abandon us. I want you to remember your salvation history. I want you to remember when you first understood that Christ died for our sins. I want you to remember when you understood he rose again from the dead. I want you to remember like a 38-year-old guy told me all of his life he's heard the gospel. And all of his life he heard about Jesus Christ dying for him. But he couldn't believe it. It was just too good to be true. Who could ever believe? All you needed to do was let Jesus into your life and your sins would be forgiven. And one of the young men that was baptized just a few weeks ago said suddenly it dawned on him at 38 years of age. It's true. He talked about the joy that flooded us all. I'll never forget meeting with Dale and not, coming out of a situation that taught all good works and performance for Jesus, and never finding complete forgiveness of sins, coming out of a religion that didn't even teach that Jesus was God. And they just said, we want you just to go through the book of Romans. We've been reading the book of Romans. And we just want you to explain it to us. And I came to Romans 5, eight, but God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, being justified freely by his blood. We have peace with God. And I didn't know that since I was a kid. So I'm just going through that. I look up and just crying. I say, good night. What are you crying about? Go back over that again. Do you mean that God just loves us even when we're sinners? And that Jesus died for us when we were in that state? You mean all we need to do is let Jesus into our life? And the tears just streamed down their faces and said, grace. They just started saying, grace, grace, grace. Do you remember those days in your own life? You say, Dave, I've grown cold. Good news. Remember. You can remember. The first thing you need to do is you need to remember your salvation history. You need to go back over in the busyness of life. You need to stop, and you need to remember. Second of all, you need to repent. He said you need to repent. The Lord says, remember from where you've fallen from falling out of that first love, now you need to repent. And what that means is that you need to come to that point. You're walking down here and you're growing cold. You're caught up with the business of life. You haven't had your quiet time in a long time. And you're not enjoying the fellowship of God's people. When you sing, you're all caught up in in your own thing. You're not really expressing love to the Lord. And he said, you need to just stop. Stop in your tracks and admit that you're wrong. If some of you have a critical spirit in your marriage... In your family life together, maybe with extended, maybe at work, if you have a critical spirit, it's not going to ever get well Till you just repent. You know what it means to repent? It means to stop and turn around and say, Jesus, I'm wrong. My spirit is wrong. My heart is wrong. You repent. And what repentance means, is it, it literally means that you change your heart, you change your mind, and really only the spirit of God can do that for you. But you got to open up to that spirit and say, man, Jesus, I'm wrong. One of the hardest things, you see, I grow cold in my relationship with Mary when I get angry with her. When I get upset with her. Man, I'm talking about being close. What do you have to do? I have to go to Mary and say, Mary, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Will you forgive me? Isn't that hard to get out, husbands? You need to do that with relationship with the Lord. You grow cold when you stop learning to look at someone in the eye and say, I'm sorry. I did the wrong thing. Will you forgive me? If you haven't had your quiet time in a long time, you need to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And he will. That's why he died. He's already forgiven you. But you can renew intimacy with him. But you need to stop being alienated. You need to stop just rotting in your own selfish pride. You need to repent from the depth of your being, head, heart, will, total being. Say, Jesus, I was wrong. You have to ask for forgiveness. And repent, you have to turn around. The third thing as we close is really important. You know what? you got to do it. Look what he says. And this is the hard part. I, I, I work with a lot of people. They can remember how they were saved. And they can repent. And they recognize Christ saying repent. But look at the third thing he says in verse 5. You remember the height from which you have fallen, you need to repent. But notice what Jesus says. It's like a Nike ad. Just do it. You need to do the things you did at first. Some of you are saying, well, David, man, it's just not happening for me. I, I have my quiet time, and, and it's just not happening. Blow, it's tough. Do it. You say, man, I up the Bible. It's, it's like reading a telephone book. Do it. You say, I don't really feel like coming to church. All of you, it's, it's really, you start saying, like, I'm not just going to fellowship with God's believers, with believers. When I go to church, it just doesn't happen. Do it. As American believers, we are, we, we're just not going to get it until we do it. And that's the hard part. Some of you I can get to remember. I can get you to remember what it was like... ...when you first came to the Lord. I can get you to really admit... ...you know, things aren't right right now. But you know the hard part for all of us... ...is to just do it. When Jesus told the, the men, the servants... ...at the marriage of Cana of Galilee... ...when the wine had run out... ...he said, fill the water pots ...and carry it... ...to the head of the feast... You know when the miracle took place? I think they filled the water pots with water. I don't think when they poured the water into the pots that it was just wine right there. Because because they took their life in their hands. Can you imagine if you're at a big, prestigious dinner and the the head of the feast needs to drink really expensive wine, you take him a glass of water? The servants' heads would have rolled. You know, to me, the incredible part of that story, it says they carried the water pots. They did it. Mary said, do whatever the master tells you to do. And I love the servants. They fill the water pots, carry them to the person. And the head of the feast reached in and drank the best wine he'd ever drank in his whole life. That's what you're going to find in your own life. You say, Dave, my life right now is cold. This Jesus thing's not working. I want to challenge you. You need to take out this book every day and just read it. It's not going to happen until you do that. You've got to just take this book out every day and read it. Some of you need to start out just five minutes, kind of like exercising. You need to just do it. You need to open this book and read it. When, as you read, I want to challenge you. You can't just do it mechanically. You need to say, Jesus, maybe you have to start out like this. Jesus, I'm not even sure you're there anymore. In fact, to be honest with you, I've got a lot of cynicism in my heart. I'm not even sure Jesus is who he said he is. But I'm going to take the challenge of, Revelation 2. Jesus, I'm going to just do it. If you're there, take the book of James. That would be a good place to start out. If you're just beginning, just take the book of James. Filled with practical stuff about your tongue and about money and about anger. All kinds of neat stuff. Just take the book of James and read it five minutes a day. And say, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, talk to me. So take five minutes and just read the book of James. And then you talk back to Jesus for five minutes. And just talk to him about what he talked to you about in the book and then talk to him about anything else you want to talk to him about and start to do that regularly every day. And I challenge you, if you'll do it, you're going to find out that that part of you that can respond to the invisible Jesus will slowly but surely start to come alive again. And it won't be just an emotional camp experience. It's not going to be just some kind of a super hilarious spiritual high. You're going to really start to get to know the Son of God. And you say, Well, Dave, why should I do it? Because you'll begin to walk with God. You'll begin every single day. If you'll start out five minutes, it'll probably extend. Probably some of you will end up spending a lot of time with him, but you'll be walking every single day with God. And some of you grow older, your body will start to become a little bit weaker. You can't figure out what happened to this life. But I got great news for you. You know what? with Jesus when you walk with him every day you don't have to look back to the days in your 20s you don't have to look back to the days in your 30s you don't have to feel like oh I just can't believe it man I'm now in my 70s or my 80s and man everything's breaking down and there's just no hope you don't have to feel it away at all you know why look how this passage closes look what Jesus says and only Jesus can say this incredible thing Jesus promises you if you walk with him look at this Verse 7, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word paradise in the first century meant, it meant a Persian garden. I love gardens. I love to go over to Fort Worth and go over to see the Japanese gardens, the Oriental gardens of Fort Worth. I love to be in the Adirondacks. In the Adirondacks, the roses will just bust out in the summertime... ...and you walk out among these beautiful roses with big mountains all around... ...and beautiful big pine trees. I love gardens. You know why I love gardens? Because the Lord Jesus promises me this. We started out human history walking in the garden with Jesus. With God. But man sinned and got thrown out of the garden. But those that come back to Jesus... ...those that believe in his son, those that believe in the resurrection... Those that come back to Jesus, Jesus invites you to walk with him again. And no matter how old I might get, when I walk with Jesus, one day, Jesus will walk me right out of this life, right into the life that lasts forever and ever and ever. You see, my best times with Mary are not back in the past, in the 20s, when I was 20. They're not back when I was 30. My greatest times in life weren't when I played football in high school or football in college. That wasn't one of the greatest things happened in my life. The greatest things in my life are still ahead of me because I'm going to paradise. How about you? I'm going to a park that makes the Persian Kings parks look like the slums of the Lower East Side of New York. And that's why I want you to remember your first love I want you to repent of the coldness. And I want to repent of my coldness. And I want us all to start to do together again the first things of our first love to do it. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that you would make us like the Ephesian church. Ignatius, just 20 years after this letter was written to the Ephesian church, writes to Onesimus, the head of the Ephesian church, And Inesimus is able to write back and say that when they received this letter, they did remember, they did repent, and they did just do it. And you brought a spiritual awakening to the Ephesian church. You renewed their first love, and for the next several hundred years, they became a fountainhead church that was one of the prestigious churches of early church history. We'd ask you that you would have used this challenge to be a church that's not only committed to truth, but, Lord, help us also to be a church that's filled with divine romance, passion, fervency, and our love for you. And, oh, Lord Jesus, I would pray that your Holy Spirit would help some of my brothers and sisters to take up the challenge and to return to their first love and to begin to carve out personal, devoted time to you, not just on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday.